Well, good morning, Willow Byrne. It's such a blessing just to come into this little space and this little mood that's been created and be able to preach. Uh, what a blessing. You know, I've been a bit uh, challenged, corrected, rebuked, in a sense, all through this, the, the whole time before I even get to preach. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for singing. Thank you for the music. Thank you for the challenges. And I just wanted to dedicate this sermon to mothers. I think I referred to mothers in this church in many different ways, all good, of course. I referred to them as special forces. Do you remember that sermon? Because you're always doing things kind of that aren't necessarily seen, but you're multi-talented. You can like turn your hand to almost anything. I think I've uh, referred to you as wonder women. I still firmly believe that. And you are wonder women. You really are. And I really pray that you'll continue to flourish as God's wonder women, as God's kingdom women. Hopefully you'll see why I've dedicated the sermon to mothers and to women as we go through. But today I want to talk about your life's work. And I'm going to call your life's work the Great Eastern. Okay. So Jesus uh, loved parables. He used parables all the time. And if the wisest mind in the world decided that rather than giving us quantum mechanics, uh, well, he did give us that as well, but rather than communicate via that way, he would just communicate via parables. I think maybe now and again, it's good for us to communicate via parables as well. So I'm going to use two parables. And I love the idea of a parable. Uh, one great theologian put parables this way in a book he wrote called The Parables of the Kingdom. He said, at its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hear hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving their mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to provoke it into active thought. The eye of a needle. <laughs> you know, those kind of parables that Jesus told. So I'm going to uh, use two parables today. The first is a great ship. And this great ship was actually called the Great Eastern. Built over four years from about 1854 to 1859 by a guy called Islamabad Kingdom Brunel. What a name. He was actually an Englishman. I'm just going to refer to him as Brunel from here. Brunel's ship at the time was bigger than any ship before. That gives you some idea of the scale. It was at least six times bigger than any ship previously built. It had this unique double hull design. Titanic probably would have done well with a hull like that. Very, very well designed, well built, very, very big, 211 metres long. In fact, for 50, 50 years, there was no other ship bigger than this one. Really amazing. There's a really good show on... Netflix on the BBC called Seven Wonders of the Industrial Age. And this was the first one that they, uh, they, they documented and, and, and talked about. It could carry 4,000 passengers in real opulence with a crew of 400. And there's a picture there. The uh, Great Eastern was designed to travel non-stop from England. Guess to where? Australia. Mm -hmm. Australia. Australia is much further, Tiff, but that's right. It did go to America many times, but it was actually designed to go to Australia non-stop in 1850 or late 1860 or so. You know, Imagine that, all the way from the UK to Australia non-stop. It had uh, four great steam engines. It had six great masts that could actually sail as well. Uh, it was probably, yeah, it was, it was a ship way before its time. Awesome ship, wonderful ship. And I'll give you a, I'll give you a tip. If you go to that Netflix series, just watch it. You'll just be blown away. And this was in every sense of the word, uh, Brunel's life work. So he was considered one of the most ingenious and prolific figures in engineering history. He was one of the great figures of the Industrial Revolution. He changed the face of the English landscape with groundbreaking designs, ingenious constructions. He built dockyards, the Great Western Railway. He revolutionised public transport. And the Great Eastern was to be his 
crowning achievement. It was to be the crown of his life's work. Now, he was a heavy smoker and he was actually diagnosed with Bright's disease, which is like a kidney inflammation, which causes all sorts of pain and that kind of thing. And uh, it was getting worse as the ship was built. So that's my first parable. My second parable, and I'd like to ask maybe if we've got any kids that are old enough, maybe Taylor, Becky, do you want to just come out here? I'm going to need you for a bit. Who else have we got? Maybe, maybe Atticus. Basically, I need you if I'll just refer you to our communion table. And today, today you'll see there's two cups there. There's a little white cup and then there's a big glass chalice full of wine. Ribena, actually. <laughs> Looks like wine. So if you guys just want to come and stand up here, I might, you know, just, in fact, sorry, just grab a seat here because I'm going to need you throughout the sermon. All right. And so what I want us to do is as I'm preaching and I'm going through the sermon, it's not going to be all that long. In fact, it's just going to build up to communion together. I want you to look at that big chalice, which is full of that red wine. And I want you to see that as your life energy, your life force, your life, because your life work is going to use up your life force, your life energy. All right. And so you three want to just come up here for a minute and I'll show you. So today, everybody arrived at church, right? And you actually, many of you come to church regularly. So for you, church, community, that kind of thing, God's kingdom work, it's a big part of your life, isn't it? Part of your life force. So what we're going to do, kids, carefully, all right, is every time I say pour out, and I'll, I'll hint, I'll point at you, I want you to come up and maybe you can just do it sort of one at a time. I want you to come up and I want you to just pour out onto the carpet here. Well, I'll clean it up later. Is some of this life energy, this life force of ours. Don't worry if you drip it a little bit. but Okay, so just come around here. It's not really the carpet, everybody. You good with that? You know what to do? Now just be careful when you pour it. Just make sure you hold it like that. So that because it kind of drips down the side a bit. All good. All right, so grab a seat there. So there are my two parables, a great ship and a great chalice. And I just want us to think about those as I go through this sermon on our life work. So your life work is any activity that you're directing towards making or doing something. Your life work is happening all the time. You don't get a choice in it. You're actually working, you're directing your energy towards something all the time. Um, Again, special mention for Mother's Day, right? Mothers, life work, oftentimes in our society, not really seen perhaps as the most noble thing. But I just want to encourage you, what a life work to dedicate yourself to. I've seen it with Carrie, I've seen it with our girls, just her life energy poured out for them. What an amazing thing. And I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination, that doesn't mean you can't do other things. You're wonder women, but like the governor general used to say, just not everything at once. Um, you know, you can do other things, but that motherly role, wow, you're pouring that out. But that leads us to an important biblical truth. The important biblical truth is this. It is written. We will stand, we will all stand before the tribunal of God. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. And that life force that he has given us, that life energy that he has given us, we have been given the choice to pour that out in the service of many pursuits. That will be judged and assessed. As it says in Hebrews, each of us will give an account of themselves to God. Just as it is appointed for people to die once, then there will be a judgment. There will be an assessment. 
an estimation of where that life force has been poured. That's a bit scary, isn't it? But it's also kind of hopeful. God actually cares what we do with our lives. (laughs) Look, it's actually important to him. So here's where we're going. We're just going to take three significant events from Abraham's life because we're all about Abraham. We're all about our mega series, our Meet God Almighty. And Abraham had many mega moments in his life where he actually met God Almighty or met some kind of visage of him. And so we're just going to look at three key events. We're going to tie it in with the Great Eastern. We're going to tie it in with our chalice and we're going to lead up to communion. So we're leading up to communion very deliberately today because that's a really special thing. That's where we're going. So Abraham actually had a great Easter. Now, before I go any further, this is not so much about exegesis today. It's more about what I call stratogesis. Has anyone heard of stratogesis before? If you have. Because <laughs> it's sort of like exegesis from the stratosphere, you know, up high. Call it stratogesis. So we're looking at big storylines and contours of the Bible, not so much the detail, which means it's on you to go and read. Genesis 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, et cetera, et cetera, wherever Abraham shows up. Because after this, we move on to Sarah and then Melchizedek. So I really encourage you to read about Abraham yourself. And Barb's given us a great reading plan there, which is on the website. Go ahead and use that. Get into it yourself. But for now, let's get into Abraham's Great Eastern. And you'll note here that if you look at where Abraham came from, is that working? Oh, good. There is Ur. And you'll notice to where he went, where did he go? He ended up in Haran for a while. We heard that from Raji a few weeks ago. And then he ended up down in Shechem and Bethel, which is near Jerusalem. What was to his east? I'm circling it. Ur. Ur, his home city. That was Abraham's great eastern. That was his home. And you might say, ah, big deal. Well, this was one of the most advanced cities of the age. You know, at about 2,000 years before Christ or so, this was an incredibly opulent, successful, secure city. Here's an artist's rendition of it. It was fed by the Euphrates, uh, and so it had canals. It had trade, industry. Um, it was at that time right on the border of the Gulf of Persia, or whatever, so it was right like the water was there. And so it receded a lot now. So it was a sea, uh, seafaring um, a port. So Abraham, along with 30,000 people, they're walled, they're secure, they're prosperous. He spent 75 years worth of his life energy. He's poured out. That's the cue, kids. Poured out. So Becky, maybe you go first. Just go and pour out a bit. Not too much. I've got to make it last to the end. He's poured out, but a good chunk. I'll leave it up to your best judgment. He's poured out 75 years worth of life energy. Not too much, not too much. Thank you. Worth of life energy, trading, building, eating, sleeping, visiting, welcoming, on and on for 75 years. There's only one person older than 75 here. Alan. (laughs) Oh, Bob, sorry. Well, I wasn't going to say because you don't say those kind of things. But now you are so rude, you people. Sorry about them, Bob. Um, so, but imagine that, like, so most of us, I'm 46, I think 46 years, okay, cool, I, f- I feel like I'm already past the best part of my life in some ways, but Abraham, 75 years, okay, and he's poured out at least a good half of his life when suddenly, 
something happens. We don't know whether it was a vision. We don't know whether it was just a voice. We don't know whether it was actually God himself. But in some way, there was a very clear message, a very clear command. And it was this, get out of your country, away from your relatives and come to the land that I'll show you. And those words were so powerful in Abraham's family that Abraham and his dad at the time, Terah, they move, they leave. They leave the opulence of that city. They are out of Ur. Now imagine if I said to you, come out of Toowoomba and just go west. (laughs) I'm not even going to tell you. What's west of Toowoomba? Well, come on, the Darling Downs. Boy, you guys, you're so harsh. Oh, there's beautiful farms out there. But if you keep going west, (laughs) desert, dryness. And that, interestingly, if you have a look at poor old Abraham here, I got, Abraham didn't have Google Maps, but we've got Google Maps. The great ziggurat, the Ziggy, that we talked about a few weeks ago, that's actually still existing now. And it was all, in all probability, it was there. Abraham probably passed it as he came out of Earth. Uh, and he's just heading, heading out, out of prosperity, out of security. He's heading out of um, the, the, the abundance of the city. He's heading out of comfortableness. I mean, imagine that. Imagine just us going out in the West. I mean, how hard would it be? Have a look. Have a look at what's between on Google Maps here. What's between Ur and Israel? Nothing but desert. So we know he takes the river route. He follows the river up to the north. But imagine being called out into that. No reliable sources of water, intense heat, constant temperature changes, unpredictable sandstorms, no food. They'd have to carry it all with them. Possible bandits. Now, can I just be honest with you? When I, when I hear this kind of out of earth talk, you would have heard it before. I'm sure you've heard sermons before called out of earth or... Oh, you haven't? Oh, well, maybe I need to go back to the drawing board then. <laughs> um, but sometimes I tend to switch off because I feel like I've heard it all before. Uh, in a sense, it's like, oh, yeah, you probably know Adrian's going to talk about come out of her and come out of your, you know, your, your sedentary lifestyle or whatever, or you're just your boring life and get into the kingdom. Well, I'm not actually saying that, but as I, uh, maybe I am, I don't know. What I am saying is that as I was doing my prep, I suddenly realized that all of us are spending our life work and our, sorry, our life energy on something. All of us are spending our life energy on our life work. We have a life work. It's building up all the time. All of us are sacrificing something to do something else. So I would love to play music. I'm actually a closet musician. She likes to, well, shower musician maybe. Don't have a very good voice for singing. Can't really play. My fingers aren't good. But I would love to do that, but I can't because I can't do all things all the time. I'm not God and neither can you. So straight away, we have a choice to make about how we're going to spend our life work. And we will spend it on something. So Brunel, the builder of the Great Eastern, was exactly the same. He came out of prosperity. He'd been a very rich engineer because he'd been very successful to get it done. But as the building commenced, there was a whole bunch of trials and kind of tribulations that were thrown his way. The shipyard caught on fire at one point. Uh, The people that were financing him went broke. He ended up having to sell his own property in order to keep financing the building of this ship. His life work for him was the Great Eastern, and he was willing to give up his house. Willing to give up his house. And we say to Christians, oh, you should be willing to give up your house. People give up their houses and different things all the time. Athletes, prize athletes, give up comfortable kinds of lifestyles in order to win that crown that's not going to last. You know, rich people give up all sorts of things to be rich, but then they go, oh, what am I doing here? Like 
maybe Bill Gates, and then suddenly they're giving money away. But in order to get there, they've actually given up other things. So Christians, in a way, aren't asked to do anything real special. They're just asked by faith to see the living Lord Jesus and then to give up things for him and to follow him. Then We're not being asked to do anything that special. Brunel then had to give up his recuperative time. He should have been out in some country chalet somewhere, just, you know, recuperating. But he didn't. The Great Eastern. The Great Eastern just consumed him. On launch date, there was been controversy because it was such a big ship. There was no real shipyards they could use cheaply. And people were saying, how are you going to get this big thing into the water once you've built it? Can't build it in the water. Very difficult. Got to get the hull built so then you can float and then you can kind of do things. So he went for this sideways kind of ideal. What we'll do is we'll have the ship built sideways on the river there. It'll be on big rails and we'll use hydraulic rams to get it in. So on the day, on the actual day of the, uh, the launch, the thing moved a couple of metres and then stopped. <laughs> the biggest ship ever is now stopped and it was stopped for two months. They brought in these bigger hydraulic rams. The hydraulic rams would just burst under pressure the ship would move a few metres, and on and on it went. Just pushing forward, pushing forward. Brunel was there nearly every day. He'd now become a laughing stock. He'd now given up his reputation, but he still pursued the Great Eastern pursuit. One night, uh, about two months after the initial sort of um, failed launch, uh, unseasonably high tide came in and floated the ship for him. Uh-huh. <laughs> So back to Abraham. So Abraham's out of a... Now, oh, I forgot. But he, by this time, had poured out a lot more of his life. So, um, you good with that, Taylor? Can I trust you? All right, mum and dad are going to have to clean that up if they don't, if you don't. So he's poured out. Again, this is the thing. What we pursue our life force, our life... When we pursue our life work, we pour out our life force, our life energy. You know what I'm saying? I know we know this, but I want us to feel it as well. How much did you pour out? Oh, okay, let's just go a little bit smaller. <laughs> no, nah, it's not going to be that long. So now out of Ur, and where does Abraham end up? Haran. How long for? No one really knows, but it wasn't days and it wasn't months. It was years. Now we actually got two conflicting versions in the Bible, or are they? In Acts and one in Genesis. In Genesis, God calls Abraham out of where? Haran. In Acts, he calls him out of where? Uh, is that a contradiction? Not really. It might be on the surface of things. Actually, what, it, what I think it means is that Abraham has been called twice. So he has been called out of Ur, along with his father. For some reason, they stop halfway. They stop at Haran and they just stay. They get caught up in the lifestyle there. God has to call them again. Terah dies. He has to call them again. And that's because God is not into half-heartedness. How many of you in your minds, get excited about a goal, get excited about a life work, and then the reality of it comes home. That ship won't launch. Hydraulic, hydraulic rams are like pressure, you know, pressure releasing everywhere. The ship won't launch. And you just think, ah, what's the point? Let's just leave it half done, go back to my chalet in the country. Now, all of us have experienced that, haven't we? So God is not a God who will allow us to live in Haran forever. He will not allow us to live in half-heartedness. He calls us out of half-heartedness. He calls Abraham out of half-heartedness as well. God calls them again. Brunel's financiers wanted to back out. It was all getting too much. 
And for them, the promise of that new ship, the excitement of it, when they saw all these hardships, no, too hard. We need to get out as soon as we can because their life work, the vision of their life work now had hit the cold wall of reality. But God's not going to leave us there, my friends. Like He's not going to leave us in half-hearted. You understand that? He's going to keep calling you. He's going to keep coming for you. He doesn't want you staying in half-heartedness. And so we've seen Abraham called out of Ur, first significant life event. And I thank Raji for all those life events that he came up with. There's about 17 of them or something. Um, Then he calls him out of Haran. And there's so many others I could have talked about, but I just want to talk about one more. Once he's in the promised land, so to speak, he's in Canaan. He's settled there. You remember the story, uh, Abraham and Lot, they have a bit of an argument, started by Lot, over what land to keep. And what does Abraham do? He goes, I'll take the fertile stuff for myself. No, he goes, okay, you take the fertile stuff, I'll take the yucky stuff over here. And God again visits him and says, I'm going to bless you. There's something happening in Abraham's heart. He's like growing, he's changing. He's out of Ur, he's out of Haran. He's seen God's faithfulness. He wants to know more. He's now more committed. This is what I mean about the curriculum that God has for us on our lives. But anyway, then there's a war and Lot's called up in that war and he's actually kidnapped and taken away. And so now imagine this, there's four kings. There's four kings and they're all a part of kind of Abram's circle. Uh, They're around him in a sense. Not one of them decide to go after Lot and they've actually lost family members as well. They're just fear struck. You know, fear can pour out your life work. Make sure you leave some, Kaya. Fear, fear sucks your life energy. Fear. Thank you, Kaya. Fear takes that life force and just pours it out. Abraham wasn't afraid. Listen to this. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled 318 trained men born in his household and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, I had a look at this. This is actually dozens of kilometers all through the night. He and his servants deployed against them by night. He attacked them. He pursued them. And eventually he rescues Lot and brings them all back. So this man who's just called out almost randomly, it would seem, has now been walking with his God for such a long time that he understands now that fear will not be his master. Fear will not suck out his life energy. It just won't. And we know Abraham wasn't a perfect man by any means, but at this stage in his life, that's a big thing. He's just made himself an enemy. He's made himself a target. He didn't allow fear to cripple himself. You know, Brunel was the same. Brunel, he, uh, he faced down fear when the shipyards caught on fire, when the financiers pulled out, when the silly ship wouldn't launch, when it actually finally did launch and on its maiden voyage, one of the engines actually blew up and killed people. Um, he didn't give up. And, and, and he wasn't pursuing a godly thing. He wasn't pursuing the God of the universe who is so special and so wonderful. He was just building a ship. Fear uses up our life energy, which brings us back to the start of the sermon and nearly towards the end. Your life work will be judged. One day our life work ends. It is poured out completely. Becky, pour it out completely. Your life, your life force, your life energy is finite. I know it feels like it isn't at times. 
especially when you're young. It feels like that day is so far away, but believe me, I've worked in emergency services for the greater part of my working life now. I've worked overseas. You think life is so secure in this country. It is not. We just saw how close Rudgie came just a few days ago. People wake up in the morning and they think, hey, today's another day. I've still got plenty of life energy left. And then it's an accident or it's a a proclamation from the doctor, you've got cancer. Your Your life is not infinite. It is so very fragile and it can easily be finished. God knows exactly when it'll be finished. He loves you. He's given you every opportunity to choose, to choose to use that life work well. But we need to remember that one day it's poured out, it's empty, there's nothing left. And what will it look like to be judged? Now, God will judge justly. He knows every thought, every moment, every contingency, every mitigating circumstance. He's a loving God. He will love completely justly in order to purify his planet. He's had enough of Reba. He's had enough of people going into child prostitution. He will not let that go on forever. He will not. He must deal with that sin and people can turn from sin. Even the people that buy child prostitutes, they can turn from their sin. This is the amazing grace of God. I don't even understand it sometimes. But if they do not turn, then God has to, has to judge. He would not be a loving God if he just let it keep going on. That would be like the grandfather in the sky who just goes, oh, well, my sons and daughters are at it again, killing each other, smashing each other. Let's just let them go. No, that's why there is a hell. That's why I believe in a hell. There has to be something that eventually deals with that once and for all. And here we have Abraham coming out of the moon-worshipping city where there would have been all sorts of atrocious things probably going on in their opulence, using their opulence for all sorts of dodgy things. God gives this guy grace. Abraham chooses to follow. You know, do you understand, like, Abraham is used in James as an example. He says this, Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works. This is the secret here. When we believe in Jesus, when we believe in God, and we go, I'm, I'm coming for you, Lord, I'm coming after you, uh, it begins to change us. It's, it's like a tree with fruit. The fruit will be changed because of what's happening in the tree, or the fruit will be good fruit or will be bad fruit. You know what I'm saying? It's not about works in themselves. That's a silly theological argument that's just consumed so much time for no good reason. God expects that if you follow him, you'll be able to see it. You'll be able to see it with good fruit. It'll be symptomatic of your faith. Abraham's used as an example because Abraham believes it's credited to him as righteousness, but then he does. He does out of his belief. He does things. Faith is a verb, not a noun. So scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And I love this next bit. You know what the next bit says? And he was what? Called God's friend. I like... You know, think of the most important person in the world right now. If he called you his friend, maybe you wouldn't want to be his friend. I don't know. You know what I'm saying, though? The most important being in the whole world, the super being called God, transdimensional, existing in all places at all times, and yet still a man in Jesus with all that power. Um, Luke, you're my friend. Nadine, you're my friend. This is our amazing God. Like, he's not a force in the sky. He's not Allah. He is God, our friend. And yes, he is sovereign still, but that's what makes our friendship all the more amazing. 
That's how Abraham was judged at the end of his life. What a guy, you know. He sold his wife, well, not sold his wife, but gave his wife to Pharaoh, you know. But at the end of his life, friend of God. Because that wasn't, that Pharaoh incident wasn't the last chapter. So Brunel, 30 years, 30, oh, someone spat the dummy. Oh, no, it's a bottle. Oh. <laughs> 30 years after that ship was launched, only 30 years, this is relatively young, especially for a ship like this, it was scrapped. This is a picture of it, just lying there. Brunel's life work. Did you know Brunel, when they were about to launch, he stood there, and there's a famous photo I showed you before in front of the chains. Shortly after that, he had a stroke from which he never recovered. He never got to see his ship on the big seas. He died. He literally consumed the rest of his life on his crowning achievement. And his crowning achievement, you know what? It never came to Australia. It never sailed the great eastern uh, oceans and ended up here. Never. It went back and forth between America. It never managed to get many passengers. It ended up being basically a dance and party ship in the Thames somewhere. You'd go there and have dinner like those cruise boats down on the, you know, the Brisbane River. That's what it became. That was his life work. You don't have to be God to judge that. You know what I mean? Like all that life for spent on that. Um, you know, I just, this is why I wanted to share it with you because I know it's just a silly, silly kind of um, illustration in some ways and a, and a show, just a TV show. But TV shows can actually speak very powerfully to us at times. They did a documentary, only, I think in the early 2000s, and they reckon they found some of the old ribs of this thing. You know, but again, it's, it's all gone. Ugh, it's all gone. And so this great ship of our life's work, where is it going? You know, where, where's it going? I really want us to ask ourselves that this week. Where's it going? Paul says this in Corinthians. He says, no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, they will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but they will be saved. And yet it will be like an escape through fire. The picture there is like you're in a house, it's burning you just get your own sorry skin out. Maybe even your family's left behind. That's the thing about our ships, the great ships of life, the great Eastern, especially for us men. We now take with us our family members. We take with us all the mothers on Mother's Day. They're with us. Well, maybe we're with them, but we're all in this ship together, wherever it's sailing, especially as families. As a church family, same thing. When one hurts, others hurt. We're all on the same ship. When that ship gets tossed back to and fro, we all get tossed to and fro. And we're all trying to steam the great eastern oceans. You know, we're trying to get to the kingdom. And we've been given a choice on which way we'll go, on how we'll spend our lives. You know, actually, before I finish, you know when they split open that ship? You know what they found in the double hull? Bodies. During construction, uh, men were actually killed. No one noticed. Because working down, there was almost like hellish working down in the hull and stuff, um, building these two big steel-plated double hulls. Men died, no one noticed, uh, and, event, and they were just sealed inside until this thing was broken apart for scrap. And that's the thing about our life's work as well. Do not think for a moment that your life work is going to be completely noble. You'll step on people, people will not die, but you know, people will be used for your pursuits. 
That is why, again, the Lord Jesus calls us to pursue him, him alone. That's where the better version of us comes out. We actually get a worse version of us come out when we're actually um, pursuing our own kind of things. We were designed for God. We were designed to walk with him. We were designed to be his people. And I want us now to think of another life's work because we're not following a God in the sky who's going, right, follow me, everybody. We're following a God who has come to earth and has died for us. And do you know where Jesus died? I find this so poignant. Do you know what was to his east as he, lay, as he, as he was pinned to that cross? Jerusalem, the king's city, the king city, the city of his father, David. That was his city, the great eastern. He could have been an awesome king in his humanity. He would have been an awesome king. And instead he gave up the great eastern. He gave it up. And there's another cup on this table. And I want you, as we come out together today to have communion, I want you to look at that empty cup and then look at the full cup. Because guess what Jesus Christ's life work was? I hope you can see your reflection in it. That's what I'd like to see. Your reflection. Jesus could have built a massive empire and showed himself to be a big, powerful God king. No. He died on that cross for you and for me. He poured out his life's work for you. Now the Psalms tell us that That's one of the ways Jesus sees himself on the cross in Psalm 22. I am poured out. I am poured out for you. Wow. That's incredible. So I'm going to pray. Amen. So as part of the mega series, towards the end, we have the, do you have a, was it an insight to share, a prayer to pray, a song to sing, any of those kind of things before we get into announcements? You have an, inst- an insight to share. This might be a curly one, Parky, but the, the Great Eastern, the big life work thing, how do you know when it's something you want to do and it's something God's calling you to do? What's the difference? Yeah, I, that's a great question because as I get older, I really think it's easy to justify certain things and think it's God's work. And the beauty of our God is he doesn't ask us to become monks in a monastery somewhere. He actually asks us simply to seek first his kingdom, which means you can seek first his kingdom with power to change, with my company, you know, at the uni, at home. But what you're doing there is when you're seeking the kingdom, you're actually seeking the king. So you're saying, all right, what would this place look like if Jesus was in charge? What would it look like if Jesus' values and culture and everything like that was at work? And that's what I'm going to work towards for the rest of my life. That's what it means to seek God's kingdom in your workplace. But that can easily become, I think, because of sin and other things, your own kingdom. And I think, again, you have to just constantly come back to God and be asking him. And he's not, he's not like a mysterious, whimsical force in the sky. I really think he does tell us and he warns us. Maybe it's through a brother Maybe it's just through life circumstances like Brunel's ship. It's, it's actually on a, everything you do in, in life is actually on a trajectory towards that, towards rust and entropy and whatever you accomplish, even family stuff. You know, ultimately Abraham has to think about family as well. Um, and so I just think, I don't know how you know, except to say, if you will continue to um, stay close to God in a sense, in the word, in prayer, at, at church, and you're praying, and if you have a peace about something, then do it. If you don't have a peace, then don't do it. But I think there's freedom as well. I don't think there's like, okay, God says to get to point D, go via B, C. He just says, 
you've got freedom. Like in the garden, you've got freedom. He didn't say to Adam, work on this tree, then that tree, then that tree. He just says, here's the garden, work it. You know what I mean? And that there was broad parameters to his call. And I think that's how we are as well. There's broad parameters, but in the center of it, we're following him. Where, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but I know what you mean, though. It's, it's a great question because it's a great temptation. And I know many people, and in myself, I could feel it. I could easily get caught up in what I think is God's work, and it's not. And we're so good at rationalizing it with Christian-type talk as well, you know? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question to ask.